This morning I mentioned it in this next part of the retreat. We'll be reflecting more on some of what can be called the Kuan Yin Dharmas. Kuan Yin is the Chinese translation of Avalokiteshvara. Avalokiteshvara is a great bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is the Sanskrit. The Pali is bodhisattva. When uh, our fundamental teacher, Sakyamuni Buddha, the one who blessings, his paramita, his virtue, we're riding on that wave right now, 2,500 some odd years after his awakening. But when Sakyamuni Buddha talked about what gave rise to that extraordinary birth, where he was the prince, Gautama went forth to, in his quest, wondering, is, is all there is, is old age, sickness, and death, and end of story? Is that it? In his consciousness, there was a, a notion, isn't there something enduring, something truly peaceful, truly trustworthy? That was his, set him off on his quest, so much so that he, he left the palace, he left his young family in search of, of this root cause of suffering. And as we know, he, he, he discovered uh, the truly peaceful, what he called the unconditioned, uncreated. Whereas I was reading the other day, all things, all seemingly separate things, this world that's so full of all this stuff, me and you and here and there and good and bad, that all that apparent separateness actually had its footing. It merged in an unseen ground, but nevertheless a real ground, something that could be realized in the heart. The true nature, or the characteristic of reality, when the and he realized it wasn't something that he had uh, attained. It's not like he got it, grabbed it. It was there all along. But that because of becoming, always leaning forward to get to the next thing, what's called bhavadana, because of bhavadana, this desire to get rid of stuff, to seek a, a secure place by knocking stuff out. 
bhavadana, vibhavadana, karmadana, the, the, the desire to stay connected, unified with the pleasing, what's called sense desire. That that always kept one focused outward. And that when he started questioning, what, what is this world? After he had the turning point of realizing he could compose and unify the body, the thinking mind, the awareness through composure, through being with the breathing, refreshing, brightening the mind. Then when he turned that mind to the nature of all the stuff he took to be true and, and real and me and you, that these characteristics reveal themselves, characteristics of change. And that once he realized, once he took that into to his being, something that's changing, then to expect that to, to give us a lasting happiness is, is crazy. Ajahn Chah, in his earthy, our teacher, in his earthy way, would say it's like going up to a duck and saying, why aren't you a chicken? Why aren't you a chicken? You just quack, quack. I mean, you could go, you could wake people up so they can meditate. Asking a duck why it's not a chicken. Or he said it's like shouting at a river, telling it it's flowing the wrong way. You'll just reap distress. Or boxing a tree, he would say, you just hurt yourself. So when one touches the nature of conditions with awareness, sees they're changing, ungraspable, causing suffering, that's the dukkha of it, they they cause suffering. You grasp at something, think it's mine, True, we lean on it, that's called birth. But then, because of the changing nature of conditions, what it was that one had leaned on, when it shifts, we lose our balance. It's as if we're sitting on a chair and then the chair, the legs fall out. We, we fall down. It's called itapachyata. It's a, it's a law of nature that the the Buddha realized it's called this-that conditionality. This being, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. This not being, that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. For example, if there's a pleasant mood and we say, oh God, finally, I've been waiting. I'm happy. And it's a pleasant mood, it's wonderful, but that leaning on it, we're relying on it. That's called birth. So there's a a sense of dependent on that, then as that mood changes, the extent to which we've relied on it, then we lose our balance and there's disappointment. There's a death. 
this being. So we're grasping at that, something. Then when that, it's like if you, when I was, spent all those years sick, whenever I did manage to get up, I would always look for a wall to lean on or the next place I could lie down. Standing for any period of time. I mean, the idea of a total agony for me would be to stand up and have a cocktail party. Just stand up and I'm just looking for somewhere to lie down. And even if I was out, had to do something, I would even lean on cars. But if you lean on a car, oh, rest. If someone drives the car off, you fall over. What do we lean on? So this, this, that conditionality. So birth being, in a moment, when there's birth, when you take some moment, some form, when we take some moment, some form, some situation, we vest it with a kind of solidity and lean on it. A praise, a success, or, or, or the opposite, maybe. Then that's, that's birth. In that very moment, we've already created death. We create death. Birth being, then de- death and decay come to be. It's a law. With the arising of birth, then you get decay and death. Arise. Birth not being, when we're not, Just, I mean, it's a silly example, but it's almost like, oh, I like the in-breath. It's, it's, it's inspiring. It's, it's full of life. It's oh, in-breath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can't just breathe in forever. Out-breath, oh, it's a bit stale, even bad breath. It's happy on the in-breath. Oh, God, I want to get to the next in-breath. Out-breath. Happy on the in-breath. Out-breath. Yet we can do that with being excited and then disappointed. Excited about things, disappointed. Excited, disappointed. Intoxicated with pleasant things. Distressed, painful things. Elated, pleasant things. Distressed, painful things. But when we start to really take on board, well, there's light and dark. There's the in-breath and the out-breath. Nature. There's that which is pleasing, neutral, displeasing. As the reflection on the nature of conditions deepens, then the condition changes, and we're not taking birth in one other. We realize there's no such thing as a, because everything's becoming otherwise in the next moment. So conditions flow and then there's ease in the heart because one is not being born. Not shutting them out, one's still rejoicing in the flow. So if there's birth, decay and death come to be. When the birth arises, death and decay arise. But birth not being, if we don't take birth, 
decay and death do not come to be. With the cessation of birth, decay and death cease. In that moment, when the bodhisattva, the seeking, recognized that grasping at the flow and wanting it to be what it couldn't be was suffering, he let go. And then the true nature appeared. It was there all along, but it was obscured. Hence the Buddha said, the cessation of greed, of hatred and delusion, is the unformed, the unconditioned. In a moment when there's not grasping, not rejection, not appropriating something as me and mine, when that falls away, the true nature is obvious. Enraptured with lust, said the Buddha, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mine ensnared, people aim at their own ruin, at the ruin of others, the ruin of both and experience mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and they experience no mental pain and grief. Thus is Nibbana, visible in this life, immediate, inviting, Attractive to be experienced by each wise being for themselves. So when we let go of grasping and delusion, that is Nibbana. We chant these qualities of Nibbana every morning. We chanted it just this evening. Thus is Nibbana visible. That's what Sanditika, we chanted it. This Nibbana is, is apparent here and now when we're not grasping, not rejecting, not appropriating. Visible in this life, immediate, that's called akaliko, it means timeless. It's not just on the full moon. It's not when your Jupiter is at midheaven only. Even when everything's gone wrong, when one is not grasping or rejecting, even when everything's gone wrong, back hurts. I went, I, <laughs> ever trying to get my body to work. So I was doing some walks and I got a bit excited about, I was doing a jog that is slower than most people's walk. Once I was jogging in Nashville, I went by a park bench and there were some people sitting there and they said, don't break the speed limit. But for me, it was a jog, but it was really slow. But even my really slow jog, I managed to pull a muscle. In the... <laughs> so I'm limping around. But still, even if you've got a pulled muscle, hurt back, mind's not focusing. When, if that's all that I am, oh God, my calf, my this, my that. Okay, I'm not rejoicing in it. The painful calf, the fatigue or whatever the state, 
or realizing your mind is not focusing the way you want. That shimmering, shifting, arising and ceasing in the ever-present heart. It's inviting, a hipasiko. We chant it every day. It's openaiko, it's like a magnet, it pulls us. But when we're so busy getting to the next thing, we miss what's here. The Buddha woke up, but not only tasted peace, he tasted the peace. Any of us, when we let go of grasping, taste peace, the one taste. Wherever we are, whatever form we're in, just like whatever leaf, oak leaf, the beautiful birch leaves, pine needles, evergreen branches, when they fall off the tree, they merge in ground. All the different wonderfully unique conditions that manifest keep melting into the one taste of the pure heart. So while the Buddha could say, Amatogadasabedama, that's the one taste. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we let go, we taste, we touch into that ground. But not only did the Buddha know taste, he understood conditions So he understood how to teach, how to help. Not everyone who's enlightened can do that. And that was because he then realized that his arising as a Buddha in this life had this history. It's taken me a while to get here. But he had lifetimes with that intention. And that's what the Bodhisattva is. Bodhi means awake. Bodhi means we let go and taste that peace of the heart. Sattva means being. Bodhisattva is an awakened being, but who's committed to the awakening of all beings. Avalokiteshvara is the Bodhisattva, the great Bodhisattva of compassion. In an awakened being, this is what our, who taught us about the Kuan Yin Dharmas, uh, had to say about the awakened beings. Master Hua. And why it's important to remember the awakened beings, like we started this evening, remembering the Buddha. The Buddhas are always thinking about us. They are mindful of us living beings. But we living beings never remember the Buddhas. Why? Why are the Buddhas mindful of living beings? It is because they see that all living beings are of the same substance. The Buddhas regard all living beings as their past fathers and mothers, as future Buddhas. So the Buddha said, all living beings on the great earth have the Buddha nature. All can become Buddhas. There's not a single living being who cannot become a Buddha. 
It is this very point that makes the doctrines of Buddhism so lofty and all-encompassing. That is why the Buddhas advocate not killing, not stealing, not committing sexual misconduct, not lying, not taking intoxicants. Maintaining these five precepts is a way of showing one's regard for all living creatures. Because the Buddha sees that all living beings are one in substance with himself, he wants to teach and transform them, to take all living beings across to the accomplishment of Buddhahood. We living beings come into this world and renounce the roots while we grasp at the branches. We renounce the roots while we grasp at the branches. We forget the fundamental matters. Turn our backs on enlightenment and unite with the dust. The wearisome mundane world. When we recognize this place where all things merge, then we can begin to sense our deep kinship with everything and everyone. Renouncing the roots and grasping the branches. Grasping the branches, what are the branches? The forms, the sounds, what we like, getting ready, what we don't like. What's the root? This heart. So one way of talking about the path is the great return. It's the great return. When we start to recognize that this disenchantment is not a bad thing, we start to realize, we get so excited about this happening, yeah! Excited about that next cappuccino or the next... It's not that there shouldn't be things to enjoy, but to get excited about this, not like that, excited about this, not like that, grasping at the roots, as we start to bless the moment with honoring, listening to the beginning and the end, enjoying the enjoyable, but realize like the full moon, it waxes and wanes. As we start to take that in, then there's a, weariness with getting so excited and so distressed, so excited and so distressed. That's why the dispassion naturally starts to form. If we're standing in front of a waterfall, it's my waterfall, I'm going to take it. You try to grab it, we can't. It eludes us. We can be in awe of it, appreciate it. And so this great return, this disenchantment, this weariness with grasping as the heart begins to notice itself. The great Bodhisattva Kuan Yin, her method, which we've been looking at today, of awakening, is called returning the hearing, turning the heart to the root, to the root condition to the ground of all things.
Kuan Yin also uh, uh, appears in the Lotus Sutra, a whole chapter devoted to Kuan Yin, called the Universal Door Chapter, where the powers of Kuan Yin, are, where the Buddha talks about the, the value, the efficacy, the importance of remembering this Bodhisattva's name, that if one can remember the name of this Bodhisattva and hold that name as it touches, that's how we are beginning our days, by bowing, holding Guan Yin's name and bowing. The name, Namo means I return my life. Kuan Shri to the one, the awakened one, the Bodhisattva, who listens at ease to the sounds of the world. So the name links us to the one who listens and allows us little by little to trust. Kuan Yin has vowed those who hold her name through the power of her depth of listening to help them overcome obstacles. She's called the bestower of fearlessness. So she helps beings fulfill their wholesome desires. But her deepest wish is to wish all beings to wake up. I started uh, because I was sick and I just wanted to get well. I was so excited about the Buddha's teaching and being in part of a tribe. We were out there in the forest battling Mara. overcoming the difficulties, trying to climb Nirvana Mountain. Then I went and got sick. Spending years lying down in pain. I just happened to read, come across a newsletter from this monastery. I didn't even, wouldn't even call it a Mahayana monastery where this master was talking, saying, you know, I don't care. He said, I don't care how sick you are. If you are sincere and you hold Guan Yin's name, she'll help you. And if you can learn this mantra, we're going to start tomorrow chanting the Great Compassion Mantra, a powerful mantra. According to this master, this was 20, 40 years ago, about 40 years ago. And I was desperate. I just wanted to get better so that I could be part of the community, help more, vigorously. So I started holding Guan Yin's name. Learned this. I didn't know how to chant the mantra, but I, I just learned what was on the page. And then by, I did it every day, lots of times. Lying down when I could. Then uh, some of the master's monks came to visit our monastery and they... I got permission from my teacher. I said, look, I'm doing this because I want to get well. My teacher wanted me to get well. So I said, I'd like to go talk to them about it. And he said, fine. So I went and said, I've been chanting uh, this mantra. I'd like to talk to you about it. And they said, oh, well, let's hear it. And I came out with something. And the, uh, the venerable Hung Shur was, he was very polite and he sort of 
grimaced a little bit, but he said that had... Um, he was looking for an adjective, trying to find a positive adjective uh, that had vigor in it or something like that. And then he just told me the mantras chanted, Namo Haladana Dalaye, Namo Waliya Bolojiri Jabalaye, Bodhisattva Yamoha, One syllable per count, and you let it flow like water. And I was so thrilled, I didn't mind. I just was chanting it any way I could. I had all sort of punctuation marks. and But he just chanted. And I did that. And I'm no great physical specimen, but I started noticing I was more and more getting drawn in. And one of the beauties of chanting is as the mantra, especially if once you commit it to heart and as the mantra flows, just like the itipiso, itipiso bhagawa arahang, or the mantra flows, the words are moving. But one starts to notice the stillness that is holding it. So even though the mantra, you could say there's a lot of movement there, but I'm just resting in stillness as I chant. I notice that the practice has started taking more and more into stillness and deepening trust. And then as I started... Uh, being interested more in the Kuan Yin Dharmas, that's then when I encountered the um, Kuan Yin's meditation method, which was called returning the hearing. In Theravada, it's called turning the mind to the deathless. But it's turning, rather than taking an external object, that's whatever it is, it's got to be shifting and changing. It's like in the Anapanasati Sutta, the third tetrad that we've been looking at, when while breathing in and out, awareness of awareness, the heart turning to notice itself. It's returning the hearing, returning the awareness to illumine what's right here. This samadhi is called the, in the Mahayana. Mahayana means great vehicle. Why is it called great vehicle? Because as one listens in and recognizes that all things merge in this heart. And as we begin to sense that all of us have this deep kinship, then we're all one family. It's called great vehicle when we're committed to, when there's a naturally compassionate commitment to the whole family, the family of living beings, because we're of one substance. So it's called great when there's that emphasis on everyone. Everyone's important. Everyone's a future Buddha. But it's hard to help if we're on slippery ground. There's an image in the scriptures of a cow stuck in the mud. You're trying to get the cow out of the mud. If you jump in, 
you're stuck in the mud. So finding a, a, a solid point, some ground to then reach and help pull. That's why the Bodhi part of the Bodhisattva is the solid ground, is the, the more we learn to touch into that which is. Sounds come and go. Day and night comes and goes. The expansion and contraction comes and goes. But what remains? What is unmoved? As our vipassana, looking into the nature of things, deepen, we've realized that the grasping just leads to distress. There's a release, what's called patinisaga, letting go, and one finds oneself resting in the ground. It's always already here. In this sutra, this is a key passage that I that touched me, the Sharangama Sutra, which means absolutely durable. The samadhi that's absolutely durable. When we turn the heart to rest in its own timeless nature, that's the indestructible samadhi. Here's a passage from that sutra. We are committed to the delusion that the mind is inside the physical body. This is the Buddha speaking. What you do not know is that the true, wondrous, luminously understanding mind contains the body and everything outside the body, the mountains, rivers, sky, the entire world. That's all within this wondrous mind. You are like someone who fails to see a boundless ocean a hundred thousand miles across and is aware only of a single floating bubble. You see that bubble floating and think it is the vast tide that surges toward the farthest branchings of the sea. End of quote. Taking a bubble to be the whole sea. That's what happens when we get contracted around possessing, being born. Then we bind ourselves to birth and death. That's why this morning we've been looking at the context, the matrix, that every sound is appearing within a listening silence. That every form is made possible by the vast space around it. And that all of our experience that we can get so elated or distressed about is happening within this mind unmoving mind. 
returning the hearing. Or turning the mind to the deathless. We looked, we practiced, or I was reflecting some this morning on one of the ways that our teacher introduced us to this is contemplating the ending of sounds, the ending of a thought, minding that gap. But I wanted to to introduce the, uh, another major way of um, cultivating this, what's called chan, this returning the hearing. And that's through what's called the hua to. That's Chinese, hua to. Hua means word. To means head. Word head. Huawei means word tail. Huato. When I'm making a word, what is before the word? Right before the word is created. There's no word. There's no thought. And then the thoughts manifest with a sound and then it dissolves back to the uncreated. Huato means it's... But the sound itself, Huawei, once, once a word is articulated, once it's manifesting into consciousness, that's called the Huawei. That's the tail of the sound, the tail of the word. But every tail of the word merges back into this source, this origin, or what the Buddha called root root where all things merge. So Hawato, traditionally, Hawato has been a question. Notice what happens when the classical Hawato uh, that was uh, being used a lot when Master Wa was teaching us about it was, who is mindful of the Buddha? Who is mindful? When you ask a question, who the awareness turns around and looks at itself. And for a moment, thinking stops. Who? There's a subtle doubt. Hmm. If it gets too strong, we kind of get a bit of a headache. Who? It's a subtle practice. Who's mindful? Just notice the attention return. Hmm. The mind might kick up some answers. What do you mean, you idiot? Who do you think's mindful? It's me. We looked at that this morning. It's me as an answer that wells up and then dissolves back into the listening. Who? The important is the question. What follows is more the tale, you know, who's mindful or who, let's say we're struggling. Who's struggling? There's struggle in the heart. And it seems like it's me, but when we, if we're struggling and we just gently drop a little crystal right into those sensations, who's struggling? Notice the ending of that thought and right before the thought, who's 
struggling. And when we look, whatever, it's just the knowing itself. If there is an answer, it's not an eternal answer. Some answer will come, but that answer will come and pop like a bubble. Whatever opinions we have about ourselves, it's important to listen to them and notice, noticing that their thoughts appearing and dissolving. One of my favorite huatos is what remains. There's all the sounds, sensations right now, flickering, shifting, shimmering, swelling, subsiding. What remains? What never moves? This was a practice that our Western abbot, Ajahn Sumedho, was doing even before he arrived at Ajahn Chah's place. Then when Ajahn Chah asked him when he arrived, what practice do you do? Ajahn Sumedho thought, oh gosh, this Thai forest monk, if I tell him what I'm doing, he's probably going to knock it down. So Ajahn Sumedho told me, he was inquiring, who? What? Listening in. And Ajahn Chah listened and said, very good, keep going. One of his favorite expressions to us, Kongkrai, forgive my pronunciation, but who does this belong to in Thai? Kongkrai. If our attention is so focused on the samadhi, on the stuff, I'm getting closer, I'm not getting closer. This is a, a, another kind of samadhi that's very important where we're looking at the sense of subject. What creates the whole sense of subject to object? Who? And this is not just a Mahayana text, as I'm pointing out. It's a, in the Theravada. It's called Turning the Mind to the Deathless. The, there was a very austere monk called Anuruddha. He didn't as far as I know, didn't crack jokes. I think he might be a bit disapproving of me. But I'm hoping I'll get him, gain a few points by recounting his story. He was austere, and the story was that he, he went blind. He got scolded for being lazy, and he said, I'll show him. And so he didn't, didn't sleep for so long that he kind of went blind. But then uh, he, he created such samadhi, he's very dedicated, that he had the foremost divine eye. He could see, without physical eyes, he could see the subtle realms. 
And one day he approached uh, Sariputra, the chief, the Buddha's chief disciple, foremost in wisdom. And this is recounted in the Pali scriptures, that conversation. And so Anuruddha approaches Sariputra and said, with my divine eye, I see the thousand-fold cosmos. Purified. Superior to the human vision. My persistence, my energy is aroused and unsluggish. My mindfulness is established and unshaken. My body is calm. The mind is concentrated. But I still suffer. And Sariputra replied, he said, friend, your thought that your divine eye unsurpassed, that sees the thousandfold cosmos, is connected to your conceit. The notion that, that your persistence, your energy is unsluggish, your mindfulness is established, your body is calm, your mind is concentrated, is connected to your restlessness. Your thought that, but I still suffer, is connected to anxiety. Don't attend to those qualities. Turn your mind to the deathless. Even someone who is really accomplished was still leaning to the next things, being very mindful, composed. The focus was still on the conditions. There still was a kind of trying to get somewhere. Turn your mind to the deathless. When he said don't attend, he's not saying knock them out, but don't make a problem. Like if you have a sore back or a sore calf or a mind that's not concentrated. If this Nibbana which is visible here and now immediately, like a magnet inviting us, is always here and now, then where is it? Even if there's a thought storm, remember Kandanya when he saw the dust dancing, but he realized the space was untroubled. If one just lets the dust dance. That's what dust does. That's what thoughts and sensations and things that move, that's their nature is to move. But when we return and listen in and allow the movement to be the movement, we can rest. And I say rest. A key is patinisaga. A key is releasing. 
this is where, even though I wanted to get well, 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 this sickness had an incredible gift to me. I was so ill, I couldn't even sit up. I had to lie down. But even when one on every out-breath just lets go, it's too much energy to even hold thoughts. Letting go on each out-breath, held by the earth, but as one relinquishes a clutching volition, one can recognize the, the ground of the heart. Might be a bit of a silly image, but I, I know it's hard to imagine. I used to be a champion wrestler. Then I got shoulder ripped out and had to put four screws in the shoulder to try to continue my wrestling career. And when I was in the hospital, after the four screws were in there, you know, then... Um, was they had a little bar where you could hold yourself up, sit up in bed, and so it, it was painful, and I was tired, but I didn't want to... I thought if I let go, how far will I... F- there was fear, because it was so tender. But I could... I knew it's not that far. I'm on the bed, I mean... It sounds silly, but then when one lets go, and then one is caught and held and supported by the bed. When, the, when we're grasping at the branches and forsaking the root, as Master Wa said, we're always, in a sense, holding some sight, some sound, some thought. All the saints and sages, certainly the Buddha, and our masters have talked about that when you release that grasping, you discover this ground of the heart, this bed of being that one can rest, where one can rest. When one clutches a condition, one creates suffering. When one lets go, then the conditions reveal themselves in this wonderful manifestation. We're giving back to nature what doesn't belong to us. The sense of self is this notion that we're an isolated, separate entity. Anatta means it, not self means it doesn't belong to us. And what we call me and mine is being supported. It's not a separate thing. It's conditioned 
Like this so-called me has to keep breathing in. If I think I am independent, I don't need anything. Just try closing your nose and closing your mouth. See how long you go. I don't need anything. And that this body, I'm not breathing now, just a few seconds and there's a very uncomfortable feeling permeating everything. Every cell is flushed now. So this so-called me in here has is being continually nourished by what is out there. Interdependence is called this-that conditionality. When there's letting go, there's more a possibility of recognizing the deep connection in this web. And the big, the big key, what I really encourage us, is to, now that we have some samadhi, some composure, all of us, even if you don't think you have samadhi, there's more composure now than when you came. I feel a lot of collective composure. Allow this composure to touch and bless the thoughts we have about ourselves. I'm this way. I'm a hopeless case. I'm a hopeless case. When we believe it and get enchanted by it, then we're taking a bubble to be the whole ocean. But when we allow the thought to reveal its changing, bubbling nature, then it's emptied and keeps merging into this boundless. How wide is your listening? Does listening, knowing, awareness have a wall? As we, when thoughts are not blessed and suffused with awareness, then they give rise to what the Buddha called papancha. They just proliferate. And then we get tyrannized by our thoughts. When the great god Saka came and asked the Buddha a question and said, Lord Buddha, devas and humans too want peace, want to live in harmony. That's what we want. And yet we end up living in hate and harming each other. What is going on? Why? And the Buddha traced it back. The root cause was papancha. Papancha sanya sankha. That's having thoughts and perceptions that become concretized. They, they're not recognized as what they are, changing, ungraspable insubstantial. We take them to be reality. Hence, then we generate a separative consciousness and using this mano-vijnana, which is powerful, we start abstracting and separating. And the, the, the me, the you, all seems so real and that leads to obsessive thinking and desires that are rooted in that obsessive thinking. 
and then making a big distinction between what I like and what I don't like. What is the good stuff and not the good stuff. And then that leads to just envy and stinginess. I'm keeping my good stuff. Or if I don't have enough good stuff, God, why do they have the good stuff? And then it leads to this oppression, fighting, conflict. Those who have not being generous. Those who don't have getting lost in envy and not learning how to cultivate the treasures in our heart. All rooted in papancha. When we start to notice the ending of a thought, Minding the gap. The Buddha encouraged us to train ourselves in nipapancha, in the ending of that obsessive thinking. He said, thinking is useful to consider, is this wholesome or not? But then learning to train ourselves in an activity to let the mind be quiet. And the beginning of that is learning to just moderate thought, let just little notes, little reminders that keep dissolving into silence. That's what the Huato does. The Huato is a question, and then for a moment all thoughts flee as one, hmm, savoring that gap, minding the gap. So encouraging us honor the forms and notice they're dissolving into the silence, the empty silence that embraces all forms and just encourage us to keep, stay with this practice. We're destined to wake up because that's our true nature. And as we do this contemplation, we will realize that we're all part of one mysterious, one mystery. I love Tanisha's phrase that she has, if I can find it, that I just came across. Let's lay ourselves at the feet of the mystery. As we allow this attachment to our thoughts and start minding the gap and letting ourselves realize we, we can't figure it all out. As we namo, lay ourselves at the f- 
feet of the mystery. Allow the process to unfold. To finish with the words of the Buddha, this dharma, this reality, cannot be described. Words fall silent before it. May the blessings of this day be shared above, below, and all around. The welfare of all beings, with the ease of each out-breath, like a pebble dropping into a pool, sending ripples effortlessly in all directions. So too, as we relax, May the goodness of our lives touch all beings near and far, seen and unseen.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.